0: Present
1: Tense Podcast. Hi, this is Anne Markham Bailey, the host and producer of Present Tense Podcast. In Episode 8 of The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places, Janice Barrett of Wild South interviews Tara Manasco. Tara Manasco is an artist and conservationist who grew up in the Bankhead Forest. She was carried by her mother on her first hike at five days old and was taken on her first two-week Sipsi River float at three years old. Her parents, Jim and Ruth Manasco, were part of the grassroots movement that got the Eastern Wilderness Act of 1975 signed into law with the Sipsi Wilderness as the first rider on the bill. Tara's mission, through both her art and her conservation work, is to reconnect people to wildlife and to wild places. Today, many people have not experienced or have forgotten that which is innate, to be fully immersed in nature, to be at home and at ease with all that can be seen and all that cannot be seen but must be felt, the drum of the earth, the song of the trees, the language of the plants, and a connection to all of it that brings peace to the heart. And now for the episode.
2: Sarah, we'll start with the uh, the question of how long the Warrior Mountains and the Bankhead National Forest have been part of your life.
3: <laughs> well this sounds kind of um, crazy but since birth I mean since before birth you know my parents were out there my, my mom was out there when she was still carrying me so my entire <laughs> life my entire life yes.
2: And what is your most powerful memory of the Bankhead? if you could have just one well that would be impossible i think
3: i was thinking about that earlier there's so many stories uh, from just a, a natural um perspective from from the nature side of it i remember so we used to go camping all the time and we would go on uh float trips down uh the Sipsi and one night we camped in and i was very little probably maybe maybe six five or six and we camped underneath the shelter and uh uh we woke up in the middle of the night and there were the the luminescence the bioluminescence was like it was like magical we were like floating in in the the luminescence Mm -hmm. it was so pretty do you remember that all the glow worms all the glow worms oh yes yes it was it was incredible and uh our weimar honor um bismarck who knew the difference between a venomous and non-venomous snake. Um, he would always protect us from the venomous ones. Mm. He didn't care about the others. He would not let us cross paths mm. uh, if it were a copperhead or a rattlesnake, but if it were a corn snake or whatever, he he would let us, you know, pass. Um, so I, I think maybe the the, rip, the boat trips, you know, were uh, probably the most memorable. And we, we took uh, more than one of those, but really it's, uh, my my entire childhood is you know peopled with these stories, so it's hard to pick one mm-hmm. and then you know from the other perspective there's so many so many so many um ceremonies and sacred spaces and uh special things that happen in those places so it's it's hard to just say there's one yeah, it would be know? impossible
2: yeah, there are so many so do you remember what rock shelter that was um no it
3: was do you remember which rock shelter it was? It was close to where we got stuck that time.
0: Which time? I know, haha. <laughs> <laughs> that particular time where we were there for like eight hours while Daddy had to walk oh out. Oh when he found Rayford.
3: Yes when he found Rayford.
0: He had Rayford. to go to Ray, Rayford Heights. Mm-hmm. Rayford was used to pulling us out.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, I think it was somewhere near there. I don't I I don't recall though. I mean I was I was a little bitty kid. I mean so much so that I could hardly get my head around what that what we were looking at. Oh and that was the same night that the pack rat stole Daddy's watch. Remember we had to go find his watch. <laughs>
2: I love pack rats. They're so cool.
3: Wow,
2: that was an eventful night. Yes. <laughs> hmm. So uh were you were you born right here on this land? Uh, no, I was born in uh, Birmingham
0: in Forest, oh, and, right. and
3: and uh, so when when they were young, when when my parents were young, um, my dad was apprenticed as a sign painter, and and so they started their young marriage in Birmingham, even though they're both from you know close by here, um, and but as we started going up. It became important to them when they saw how things were in the city, which was not a bad thing, but they wanted us to have what they had. They wanted us to have that connection to the land. So we, they made a very deliberate choice to move back here and to bring us here because they wanted us to have what they had. And so uh, we lived in Birmingham until I was six, Before but we came up every weekend
0: uh, that's what I was just going to yes. say before we moved back. We were up here every weekend. Every weekend. And then when we got this property next door, we built a little shack on it. And yeah. it was a little shack, but it it uh, gave us shelter and we'd spend the night here. We'd come up on Friday afternoon and spend Friday and Saturday night. And it was hard going home on Sunday night. Yeah. <laughs> Then from here we'd go to the forest every Saturday and every yep. Sunday. Right. Wow! Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, um,
3: but for the most part, you know, this this place is embedded and encoded, right? Yeah.
2: That makes me think of uh, Aldo Leopold. Yes. And his shack up in Wisconsin, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And how he would—I mean, it was like a chicken coop that right. he restored. He made—they made into a a little habitation just so that they could have a place out in the country. Right. And they would go up there on yeah. the weekends and live, mm-hmm. in this, live in this chicken coop. It's yep. like, yeah. It works. Yep. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, in your opinion, how were the Bankhead National Forest and the Sipsea Wilderness different from other places?
3: Well that's a very that's a very broad question Um, if you mean how are they different than other other wild places or just how are they different in general from other wild places yeah yeah well um, I I think one thing that makes the Sipsi and the Bankhead so special is it's kind of like having our own piece of the Smoky Mountains right here you know because it's the last finger of the Appalachians and so you have all of the Hemlocks and the rhododendrons and the mountain laurels and the bloodroot, and you know, all the things that you have in the Smokies are here. And so, and, and that's also, you know, traditional homeland Cherokee. So, you mm-hmm. have that piece of that, the homeland is also here. So, it's unique in that sense. And, um, and I, it's hard for me to separate myself out and talk about why it's different. But I know that it speaks very strongly to all kinds of people that don't have the background that I have. But for me, you know, the sacred sites and the power and the, and, 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 and the medicine that's embedded in that forest uh, and growing up in that, literally growing up in that forest and, you know, breathing in that um, air and, and my feet in that soil, you know, all, all that all that medicine, all that power is encoded in me. And so that's why it's different than anywhere else. That's why I can go to India or Belize or wherever and those powerful and amazing. But I just actually feel like, I actually feel like the Bankhead and the sipsi is entwined in my DNA. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's encoded. So for me, that's how I would speak for why it's different. It's almost like an extension of myself, you know. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. It's just, it's just, um, we just occupy the same space. Mm -hmm. And so that means I occupy that space wherever I am in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can be in India
2: and I'm still in the bank head. Right. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that takes us to my our next question: is how how to you is the forest a sacred place?
3: Well, it's it's um, it's full of the sacred places and it's full of sacred beings. It's um, there's a lot of uh, ceremonial sites there are a lot of um you know trail marker trees there's still places and i and i know you know this as well as me that where you can still see the buffalo trail the migratory buffalo trail you can still see it if you know what you're looking Mm -hmm. at you know and uh it's just um you know uh, things have gotten so developed everywhere else uh, you know there's there's places of of power everywhere but because this area has been protected and then those places are more intact and because people have gone and made ceremony or even people who don't have that spiritual background who go and hike and feel the the natural beauty you know all that all that energy is getting put back into the forest it gives us energy it gives the forest energy so it's um in that way i think that would be true
2: So your parents, Ruth and Jim, were leaders in the work of getting the the Eastern uh, Wilderness Act passed and also the Sipsi Wilderness designated as wilderness. So what was it like for you during that time? Um, Magical. Yeah, magical. Uh, We were out there all the time.
3: We were out there even more than um, normally, and uh, we took so many people out there and— um, it was just, I was always happy to be in the forest and I knew we, I knew what we were doing, even, even as a very young person, uh, we were all aware of, of what we were doing and it, and it mattered to all of us and they had instilled those values in us already. And so, so we, we knew why we were there and, uh, but we still loved it even when we knew we were fighting for something mm-hmm. that was in serious trouble. You know, we, we, uh, still appreciated the beauty of it and, you know. We occasionally had to scrub our vine rotter off with tomato juice because of all the skunk encounters, but <laughs> <laughs> it was magical. I, the cost came much later, you know. There, there was definitely a cost for what we did, you know. You know, people, uh, and and no regrets, no regrets. None of us have any regrets about the price that was paid, but but it did it did cost my father his career, and and you know we struggled uh, after that and. Um, in some ways, his career never really recovered, but I mean, he did okay. But he was not the top of his game when he decided, "I have to do this. This matters more than that." And so, um, afterwards, it was a hardship in some ways. But it's not anything we ever thought about. It's like you know, you make a decision, you decide that's it. It was for the right mm-hmm. reasons, and and none of us
2: ever looked back. It's like a calling. Yeah, it was. It was a calling. Yeah. Could you talk some more about um, how that was for Jim, how that affected his career? What what was he doing at the time? Well, so
3: there was one year when it was so important to get people out there, to get the politicians out there, to get anyone and everyone of any influence or power that would listen, that wasn't he out there like 300 days in one year?
0: I don't remember that in particular, but it was like he used his work days, oh, it would be like missing one or two days a week. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because a lot of times people would want to go on a hike in the middle of the week, you know, rather than on the weekend.
3: So, yeah. So for a number, you know, three or four years, maybe longer, it was like that. Yeah. So uh, it's just... um, but, but he 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 never regretted it, and 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 neither did we. But it just it just there was a price that was mm-hmm. paid, you know. So what yeah. was he doing during that during that? But time? He was a commercial artist. So he was uh, in Birmingham. He was lettering and painting signs and painting truck lines. He was self employed most of the time, this, so
0: he yeah. could do what mm-hmm. he wanted to do this mm-hmm. was before there were any
3: graphics that came out of a, a machine right, right? yes um, all-hand lettering and mm-hmm. he was one of the few that could do it and he also um, mastered a gold leaf painting you know, all the, the um, like lawyers offices and stuff the gold leaf painting oh. something no one else could do so so it was it was like that it's not it's not that he you know didn't continue to work but but the where he had so many jobs he was turning them down mm-hmm. you know he wasn't um, you know, looking after those as carefully and keeping that, you know, clientele as established, you know, so in that way,
2: that's what happened. Wow. I, did, I didn't know that part yeah, of it. Yeah,
3: people don't think about that part. Yeah. People never think about that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, it's, it's it, you shouldn't. I mean, what, what you should think about is that more than a million acres have been saved. Mm-hmm east of the Mississippi now because of that. And that's, that's the right thing to think about. But yeah, there, there, there was definitely a cost to yeah. them both and they, they accepted it. And, uh, and, uh, none of us have any
2: regrets. Um, could you talk about coming to an awareness that the Bankhead National Forest was under attack?
3: So there's two, in, in my mind, there's two waves of attack. So, you know, there's the early one where, you know, the Forest Service was just clear-cutting anything and everything. I mean, this was a long time ago. This was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a all-out war on um, predators. Uh, this is a general public going in and shooting and killing and trapping every bearer that we had. They'd be staked out on the side of the road very proudly, you know, foxes, cougars, bobcats, everything out there, um, so between the clear cutting and, uh, that all-out war on fur um, it's pretty obvious that, you know, I mean, from, from a very, very, very young age that, you know, the forest was in trouble, and then, you know, once the Wilderness Act passed and, you know, some of that, you know, became protected, and then there was, like, I guess, like, in the, um, and things were better to a degree for a while. And then um, all the things passed about the same time the wilderness passed, all the um, environmental protection stuff went into place too. So that mm-hmm. helped a lot. Um, but then, you know, that next wave came in the, in the eighties, mm-hmm. you know, when the clear cutting started again and clear cutting in and around sacred sites and all that. And that's uh, like, I think for me, the second trigger there were a lot of things that happened, but the biggest trigger I can remember for that second wave in the 80s was when they clear-cut Indian tomb. You know, that's that was the next rallying yeah. cry for the next generation mm-hmm. that said, you know, not acceptable.
2: So, Yeah, it was that. They got a, a new revision plan in sometime in the 1980s that came out, and that was that when they were mandated to do even more clear-cutting, right. more right. management for timber harvest, right. timber production, right. and that's when... Yes. That's when Indian Tomb and yeah. and then everything else got really ramped up. Yeah. Um, so when that started happening in places such as in Indian Tomb Hollow, um, what did you see as your role in saving the last wild places? Hmm. And can you also talk about Jim and Rusty's role at that yeah. time?
3: So, um, in in general, the the impact of of, of what happened at Indian Tomb was uh, so so devastating. It was all hands on deck. We all rallied as um, warriors, in a sense, to make our voices heard. Everyone, and this is not just the tribe or the Blue Clan, but. Other clans and other people and communities, and even within the Forest Service too. Of course, um, people that um, a, a giant community of people came together and says this is not acceptable. So there was that. But at the same time, for me, um, I've always been more interested in the medicine side of things. Um, you know, my father passed on. A tremendous amount of his knowledge that was passed to him from his uncles and his uh, grandmother and uh, so I was learning all that and finding my way and um, it was more I think ultimately then and and absolutely without question in the years that followed it's more important to me to keep my eye on the medicine and the sacred and um even though I was part of the the protests and the hearings and all that, uh, my bigger role was making new medicine. Because we have this concept that the only medicine that exists is, is I mean sometimes we can get into this trap that old medicine, the medicine that the elders made or the uh, marker trees that were made 500 or 300 years ago, or you know the carvings at Kenlock. And all that is absolutely true and beautiful, but even that medicine was new at some point. And nature does not occur in a void, and it certainly doesn't occur, um, sacred sites don't occur when cultures are all around it and passing over it and and through it. You have to make new medicine. You have to make new medicine. If you don't make new medicine, even the old medicine will die. So to me, the most powerful thing that we did at Indian Tomb, myself, uh, a beautiful soul named Charles Kennedy, um, a couple other people, while we were all protesting, we were also taking care of the sacred and, and, and healing those wounds from, from, the, from the spiritual side. So just a, an example of that would be uh, we went, to, so we did ceremonies. We did, we did purification lodges there. Uh, sometimes riding the clear-cut, sometimes on the creek, Um, and we planted squash and corn and beans in that clear-cut, and we spread birdseed in that clear-cut, and uh, we sang new medicine, you know? So, uh, and and, and out of that, um, a new medicine was born, and that story is still unfolding, but there might still be that clear-cut there, and we may have lost some beautiful... Beings that have passed over now, or are on their way out, some sacred, some sacred trees, more than one. Um, but that energy's there, and it was that it was that groundswell of energy that happened there, that that changed things again, just like the the passing of the wilderness changed things, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that story's being told. So, I think, for me, that's how I see my role. I see my role more about. You know, um, looking at the medicine, looking at the sacred sites, looking at how can we remember that we have to continue to make that medicine. We have to continue to sing songs. We have to continue to make new songs, new carvings, new trees, um, new ways of being. And everything is so much more complex now. You know, like sometimes you almost have to be a warrior and uh, a person that carries medicine at the same time. But for me, my, my focus has always been more on the medicine side, carrying that knowledge, making sure that knowledge doesn't get lost, making sure those stories and those medicines and those songs are remembered so that we can know how to make new songs. You know, yes, let's always sing the old songs, but let's build on those songs and make new ones. Let's make a new sacred song that can sing to and address a force that has been clear cut, you know? Let's don't just mm-hmm. sing to the beautiful things that are there. Let's sing beautiful things that we want to be into being. That might have been too much, but yeah, okay.
1: No, not too much. Okay, good.
3: That's that's my role. That's my role. I wanna I want I want to remind people of what we're fighting for, you know. It's like I, I don't people I don't want people to just be fighting. I I want people to remember you just need to take your shoes off and go stand out there and listen sometimes. You know, we forget that. And, uh, and I also think that we have to sing. We have to sing to that medicine. We have to talk, and we have to be out there. We have to say, stay. We have to ask that energy and those beings and those trees and those symbols to stay with us, you know, because if we forget, if we stop singing, and all we do is fight, you know, we, we have to remember to invite that beauty to stay with us you know I think for me that's the single most important thing and that's why um, I I do work with the community and I do work with the clan and I I do ceremony but my most significant um, role and time and energy is out there on my own saying stay I see you I witness you I witness your pain I witness your beauty and, and we want you to stay with us stay with us and thank you and thank you and thank you you know that's my do, that's my role and in some ways it's not quite the legacy my, my dad had in mind for me but in the end it's one he's quite happy with because he could not quite do that he had too much of the warrior energy mm. and it's not that I don't I spent many, 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 many years as a martial artist, you know. It's not that I don't understand um, the concepts of war and the fight. It's just I made that choice. Mm-hmm. Or rather, the forest chose for me. The forest says, no, you you have to remember. You have to do this other thing. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think that means that a person only has to do one. It's just everybody just needs to listen to what
2: what their role is, and it might be more than one. Right, yeah, Yeah, I believe that too. Yeah, I think there has to be some of all of that. I agree, I absolutely
3: agree. And um, the thing about, you know, even, and and this is certainly true of of what happened uh, with the Sipsi wilderness when it was first passed, with Indian tomb, with what happened at Kinloch, Um, you know, the warriors need that medicine. The warriors need that medicine. Uh, the people who are going to go out and 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 go to those hearings and and write those those letters and you know they need that medicine too. But if you're building, I, at least from my perspective, if your if your role is to build and carry and hold that medicine, if that's part of your lineage that you accept, then you can't spend too much time in the fight, or you won't be there to support the warriors and the fighters when they need that support. Mm -hmm. So it's, and and then some people can wear both. Some people can wear both sets of shoes. And, uh, but, but absolutely. And anyone who is going to, you know, fight to save the last wild places, they need that, they need that medicine too, for sure. We all do, yeah.
2: I believe that's true. And the uh, the warrior presence was very very strong back in the early '90s when, like, the bankhead monitor was being formed, and yes. there was so much, so much outward protest toward the Forest Service. Right. And um, and that was appropriate at that time. It, it had was, to happen. It was
3: appropriate, and it, and it did have to happen. It did. It did. I agree, and it, and
2: it changed things. It did. It changed things a lot. Mm -hmm. it worked Mm -hmm. it worked but I mean the the medicine part of it was just as important right right and there are times in our dealings with the Forest Service even though things changed dramatically because of that work there are still times when we have to go up against the Forest Service for things that happen even now right they're much fewer and far between and that and such so drastic ac- action isn't required at this time anymore, but um, I feel that we always have to be vigilant. We have to be prepared because it could
0: happen again.
3: Yes, yes, it could.
2: And um. um so, what, what is the power of the wild in a human life? What, what would you say to that? Or would you have anything to say to that? It's our birthright. It's the birthright of every human being.
3: And uh, from a spiritual standpoint, from a shamanic standpoint, um, you know, every, every first religion in every culture on earth has its roots in shamanism, which is um, strongly rooted in appreciation and love of um, wild things and wild places. So it's it's our birthright. It's the birthright of every person, and uh, everyone can get disconnected from that. And um, but if we are still encoded in a way that if we don't get that some, some piece of us does not thrive. And, um, it's, in that sense, what I was talking about earlier, the, I spent so much time in the Sipsi and the Bankhead when I was growing up that it's encoded in me, but, but, but wild things are encoded in all of us too. The, the wild places are encoded in us. And, uh, I mean, we're we're finding out things now, and science even you know, um, it makes more and more sense every day. What uh, the medicine people knew all along, or what shamanism um, addressed, and um, I think I think that that's why people who go to the bankhead and who go to the SIPSI who. Maybe have that cultural background. Maybe they have a native background. Maybe they you know. Maybe you know they're connected to um, the songs and the traditions. Or maybe they're just hiking, and they just feel this powerful pull to the tree and the waters. And um, it's it's because of that song that that first song uh, is encoded in all of us. It might have been in a different language. It might have been in a different. Um, might have been on a different continent even. But we all, at our at our at our roots, we all respond to that. It's built in all of us, and um, that's that's why wild places matter.
2: So, in in keeping this the new medicine going, and. I believe too that you know if you if you don't adapt you die. Everything has to evolve, including, right. including things like that. Um, how do, how do you see that being perpetuated in our society today? Like how how are people going to make new medicine? Mm-hmm. How do you see that happening for as a as a way of healing for our wild places? Um, the way that you've used medicine, how do you see that being passed on and being perpetuated?
3: Well, that one's tough. Um, There's so many branches on this tree, I'm I'm trying to figure out which branch I wanna go down. (laughs) Well, so not everybody's out there. Not everybody's out there um, in the SIPC walking those trails. Thank goodness. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so but that doesn't mean that it's not still, you know, in you and that and that that place needs to exist in this world whether you ever put your toe in it or not because that energy just needs to be out there Absolutely. in the world. Absolutely. Because we connect to it whether we're in it or not. And so there's different ways that um that medicine is happening and it's happening in 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 new ways now and so one of the new ways uh, is that people who knew nothing about any of this may be out there hiking and they get dragged out there by a friend who loves to hike and they've never done it and all of a sudden they discover this love of this place and then they're in there every weekend i've seen that happen i know you Mm -hmm. have hundreds of times Um, so that's one way that that medicine gets out there. And another way, um, you know, I work at the Birmingham Zoo and um, I have a degree in wildlife biology and I've worked for lots of game and fish agencies throughout my life, but but working at the zoo, I have this opportunity to talk to people a lot about the natural world. And we're an AZA accredited zoo, which means there are more than 2,000 zoos in North America and about 230 are accredited. And if you're accredited, uh, you take conservation very, very seriously. In fact, our, our mission is Inspiring Passion to conserve the natural world. Conservation is in our mission statement. And I actually get to enact and live that statement. You know, I get to, I get to work with people and um, we send people all over the world to work on conservation research projects. So that's the way I get uh, medicine out there every day is, is, is helping people connect uh, to and, and find out that there are things happening out in the world and that they can be part of that change. Like, even their mission, you know, ticket, a par- portion of that goes towards, towards conservation. So, and, I mean, that's a very specific thing, but I can speak to it specifically. Mm-hmm. But, and, and then your talent, what you do with your art, you know, where, where um, you know, the Sipsi and the Bankhead is embedded in you. It's absolutely embedded in you. And then when you go and you do these drawings and paintings and you're very talented, I have always admired your work, but there's, there's magic and there's beauty in it and people find that and they respond to it, you know? So there's, there's a thousand different ways and we, we do have to be um, more creative uh, in how we reach out. And I, you know, I don't know what the final answer is. I, I don't know. I don't know what the hell is happening in society right now. I don't think anyone does. Um, but so I can't say where it's going. But I know my role. Mm-hmm. You know. So I guess I would say, figure out what your role is. Not not you specifically. You know what yours is. But for the person who's trying to figure it out, it's like figure out what kind of agent of change you're going to be. And like somewhere along the way, I had to make the decision that I was gonna be an agent of change through art and medicine, not in warriorship. And that's the path I took. And, and I think people are making choices as artists and they're making choices as activists and they're making choices as educators and as researchers. There's a thousand ways. And, and all of that is powerful and 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 meet and write, and I will say again underneath all of that, we can never forget that we need to be out there singing, offering pollen and corn and tobacco and beans and growing squash and corn, and uh, we just we need to be out there with, in gratitude and thanks. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different branches all these different ways to create that uh, sense of wonder and gratitude for the natural world. But there's also that other layer that is embedded underneath all of it. And that's that, you know, we continue to, to make that medicine, uh, specifically like in ceremony and in what we do. And sometimes not specifically, sometimes just being out there and being grateful. And if you can't get out there, uh, you know, you can buy a painting that when you bring into your home, you know, helps you set a sacred space in your own home. Or when you buy a ticket to go to the zoo, and you support jaguar research, you know, in Belize, um, it just goes on and on. But uh, I'll, I'll be honest in the sense that I really don't know what society's up to right mm-hmm. now. I've okay. Never seen That's anything a great like it. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> don't know where we're going.
2: But speaking of creativity. Um, Ever since the early days of the Bankhead Monitor, you know, you've contributed your creativity in different ways, including writing. Mm -hmm. And um, do you, do you recall um, the first time you met Lamar Marshall? Uh. Or, Or how you got involved with the Bankhead Monitor?
3: I think I think Lamar and my dad had met already, and then I met Lamar. And uh, I'm trying to remember. I think I actually went with my dad to Lamar's house. I met him at his house for the first time, and you know it was about the time the Indian Tomb thing happened. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, that's that would be that would be right. Yeah, yeah, he was. It was it was a very very interesting time. He is such a character. (laughs) I'm sure he's still a character. He still is. (laughs) I haven't seen him forever. (laughs) Oh, my dad and he, they they really,
2: they really hit it off. Yeah. They did. Yeah. Yeah. Lamar loved your dad. Yeah, Lamar was in the office the other day. He spent a few hours there the other day, so I got a good visit with him. Good. Um, So your efforts have brought about lasting change, and in a world where many people are disillusioned, what is your view? Broad question.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> what is the secret meaning of the universe, Tara? <laughs> <laughs> do you feel hopeful about the the future of wild places? Yes, absolutely, I do.
3: Because if I didn't feel hopeful about the future of wild places, I might as well be dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's nothing to live for. Um, That sounds really harsh. (laughs) That's not on (laughs) the (laughs) podcast. But I do. And that doesn't mean that there's not the opportunity for tremendous sorrow at the same time. But I just, I will never give up. I will never, ever, ever give up for wild things and wild places. I just won't. And um, and it's not a misplaced hope. I mean, really, it's it's really not even about... And I'm, I will not be the first person that's ever said this, and I will not be the last, but it's not about whether the wild places are going to be here or not. It's about whether we're going to be here to enjoy the wild places. Wild places are going to be fine. We may not be fine. So um, we need to be more worried about about what we're doing that's going to get us kicked off the planet mm-hmm. than, than the planet getting kicked off the planet the planet's going to be fine but in terms of um, you know things that happen where things get destroyed or, or broken down or they die uh, or the you know, structure gets vandalized none of that can take the power and beauty of, of what's here away from us you know that's that's um that's something that that exists whether it's still there as a structure or not. And uh, I'm I'm not gonna give up on a place. Um, I, if I don't even want to say the name, I'm not gonna say the name. If a certain place that that I love so much, if it were completely destroyed and vandalized, I would still go there. I would still sing. I would still offer. I would still make medicine, and I would still feel the beauty of that place in my heart. And uh, I, it, it just—you can't take that away. It's—it's it's not possible to un, to unhinge that. It's a really hard thing for me and a lot of people to get to get our heads around. But, but I really believe that, and so for that reason, I don't lose hope because, you know. Nobody else gets to take my hope away. That's my choice. That's my choice. That's my power. And so if you cut down all the trees on a sacred side or you vandalize, um, you know, symbols or you do any of that stuff, that doesn't, that's, that does not take away the beauty and the power of what is there. And uh, if if we all have to start from scratch, we all start from scratch, but so in that sense, um, the power of community and, and like-minded people and the ability to come together and, and, and make things new again, that's, that's why I don't lose hope because I know that we can do that. We've done it, we've done it more than once. We have proof more than once that it's, it's impossible. Things are never impossible with the right people involved. Like if my parents had, if you had told them, you know 30 or 40 years ago that that they were going to be part of this little ragtag band of uh, you know people that decided they wanted to do something and then they're like well hey let's try this and they're like well no we can't do that because there are no there are no will in the east and there can't be when they're like well let's just you know re let's just rewrite the law sure we can do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no problem you know uh you know, it's it's funny how that works. I mean, and and I think for me that's part of the lesson in never losing hope because I know impossible things are possible because I've seen it happen. You know, like uh, you just never know where the power of, of passion is going to take you, you know.
1: Well. Thanks to cellist Craig Holtgren for our theme music. Thanks to the White Horse Singers for the episode music. Thanks to Janice Barrett of Wild South for her help with this episode. Please subscribe to Present Tense on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and share the podcast with your friends. We do not use advertisers and rely on Green Bucket Press product sales to support the program. So check out our web store at greenbucketpress.com backslash shop. Also check out our episode notes on greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. Until the next time...